Amen. Wow, wow. Excellent job, guys. That was great. You guys can be seated. You can, if you have a, a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 today. 1 Peter chapter 3, and you can turn or tap. We're totally fine with digital Bibles here at Hope Church. We'd love for you to be able to follow along, though, and see where this stuff we're talking about comes from. 1 Peter chapter 3, the, uh, the part of, of Scripture we're going to talk about today says something a little bit hard to understand when you first read it, and then uh, it just becomes harder when you do understand what's being said. <laughs> so it's, it's, this is going to be one uh, I want you to try to listen well for, but it's, it's given to us for our benefit. It's given to us because God's telling us what's true. Um, I said, Rachel and I went to a marriage conference yesterday, and we got to sit down over lunch with a couple that was in a pretty hard moment in ministry. And ministry is a word that just means service, but we usually use it to mean service like for the church. So we try not to use like churchy words at Hope Church, but ministry, that's, that's what that means. And these people were, um, the, the guy was a full-time minister. He was a, a pastor. And he's in a really hard spot. And he's just kind of pouring stuff out to Rachel and I because we're, you know, divorced from the situation. We're just his friend. And you listen to him talk about it and uh, respond, you know. I, I told him stuff. And afterward, uh, Rachel brought up in the middle of it. She, so uh, recently there was a young mom that was having a hard time with babies. And Rachel said, listen, just make it two years and then you'll be fine. And I told her afterward, like, that's not encouraging. Like, two years is a really long time. And I had told the guy something similar. And Rachel was like, yeah, this is, a, this is the hard advice. It's like, okay, just don't die and everything will be Okay. <laughs> And that's kind of what it feels like. This, this morning, the, the passage is, is similar in some ways. Here's how it starts off. It says in 1 Peter 3, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's called a rhetorical statement. It's a question that you assume the answer to. Well, nobody. Who would stop you from doing something good? Peter then quickly, like, addresses the obvious answer, because uh, a lot of people, apparently, I don't know if you've ever tried to do something good, but a lot of people step up and make it hard. A lot of people show a lot of apathy, if not outright hostility. You know, we did that Big Bear Park event, and it was really a lot of fun. But there's a part of you that always has to kind of gear up for something like that. We do a lot of promotion beforehand because we want to let people know why we're doing what we're doing. And if we're going to do the event, we actually want people to come. And if you go around and, and invite people door to door, every time you walk up to another house, even if you're just leaving the door hanger, we usually don't knock. We just leave a little door hanger on there, let them know what we're doing, and move on to the next house. But there's a part of you that has to overcome a certain sort of fear. What are they going to say? What do they think about what I'm doing? You know, sometimes it's legitimate because there's like dogs and the dog will come up to the fence and rah, 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 and you look on the backside and maybe it's like our dog. It's basically a cat with a loud bark, you know. But sometimes it's a very imposing animal. Those things are actually fearful. But generally with people, what are you fearing? You know, I'm not really scared of like bullets coming my way. But yeah, I'm out here. I'm doing this. I'm presenting to you something that is my heart. 
knowing that you probably don't agree with me. And if we get to talk about it, you're going to get uncomfortable, and, and so will I. So even outside of like doing events and, and promotion for events, every Christian is given the responsibility, biblically, of telling other people about what's most important to them and most important full stop. And of course, that's how love works. We're commanded. All of the law is in these two commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you know anything about love, it requires, it, it necessitates speaking. Talk about in a relationship, communication being so important, the lifeblood of that relationship. Listen, what it is for you to love the people of the world is to speak, to just give them something of who you are. And yeah, that can be a cup of cold water or a um, you know, snow cone with tiger's blood syrup on it. But it can also be and should also be something of the beauty of the glory that you've seen in who God is. And yet when you step forward to do that, to speak those words, what do you get back? You know, it's generally not like applause and thanks for your willingness to so beautifully express these eternal glories. It's usually, huh. So that's what you think, huh? If not, a quick emotional objection to what you believe. I think more and more you're going to get the the latter. The clearer you are about what we really believe, I think the more frequently you're going to see the responses from people looking like the responses in the Scriptures. But when people preach the gospel in the Scriptures, they weren't always like met with either applause or just kind of like general friendly apathy. (laughs) That's what we usually experience. Biblically, they got lions. And I think things are going to move more that way than the other. So how do we keep doing this? How do we keep loving? How do we keep pouring out when what we're getting back from other people is not positive, is not encouraging? It doesn't even seem to be that effective. Who are we to judge what the Holy Spirit does? But it doesn't seem to be always that effective. How do we keep going when people around us are rough. Now, I'm a kind of kid that knew a lot more about Weird Al's Amish Paradise than Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. I actually had like the lyrics of Amish Paradise in my heart before I knew Coolio was like a person. Uh, But in Amish Paradise, he even sings about a local boy kicking him in the rear last week. And he just smiled as an Amish person. I don't know if you know a lot about Weird Al's catalog, but uh, he's, he's a parody artist. <laughs> artist. Uh, and he did this Gangster's Paradise parody called Amish Paradise, where he's singing as an Amish person. Caught up, it's not worth the preamble. Uh, but he says a local boy kicked him in the butt, and he just smiled at him. He turned the other cheek. He really didn't care. In fact, he wished him well, because he'll be laughing his head off when that kid is burning in hell. Now... It's supposed to be funny. But if you say it in church, it does sound like, because <gasps> there's a part of you that realizes, like, that's a legitimate response that we might have. Why do you keep pushing when they're kicking you? Why do you keep loving? Why do you keep serving when they're spitting? Why not? 
rub your hands together like Mr. Burns in anticipation of the judgment to come. That's not the model that we have biblically, but why not? Well, 1 Peter tells us. In 1 Peter, we get this, this series of sort of ideas. This, this, he starts by saying that Christians, even when they're hurt, should continue to do good things, and they have to give a reason for the hope that they have. And then he grounds that in Jesus, who is the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. Then, and this seems like out of nowhere to us, and it has a weird set of phrases that make this passage somewhat difficult, Peter starts to use Noah as an example of somebody who is continuing to speak and continuing to love, even when the people around him are giving him nothing back but, but hard things. And that's what I want us to see. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, singular, for the unrighteous, plural. Now, that singular plural is in the original language, but it's there. Jesus, the righteous one, suffering once for the sins of the unrighteous us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, this is where you got to buckle up a little bit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So <laughs> what is Peter saying? At first, it looks like he says something like Peter, uh, uh, Jesus in the resurrection, like goes to hell and preaches to like angels or dead people. Did you read it? Let yourself go a little bit. What do you think it might mean? He, it sounds like he's got something that he's saying that goes way outside of kind of what we've always been taught in Christianity, that, that there is a time to live and a time to die, and then comes the judgment. And at some point in that living and dying, if you hear and believe, you can be saved. But that's it. Is he saying something different here? I, I want to just model, because we've got this kind of uniquely tricky passage, how one would go about understanding this and understanding it well, not leaping to conclusions that are wrong. If you get to wrong conclusions about the menu at a restaurant, you might have a, a bum meal. But if you get to wrong conclusions about what Scripture says, way bigger possible you know, outcomes. So let's think about it. I want to think about it well. When you start to read Scripture and you want to understand it, the first thing I want you to do is pray. You want to ask for guidance from the Lord as you're reading what you're reading, that He would help you to understand now, some people talk about prayer as though you read, shut the book, and then pray as though God would just give you an assurance or give you some sort of special knowledge. That's not what we believe. We believe that you pray continuously, so you're praying this whole time, but that you pray, you read, you pray, and you think. You leave the book open. You keep reading. God has given you reason. And look around you. He's given you a church. He's given you a capital C church. He's given you millennia of godly, wise people who have spent decades studying, thinking, comparing. 
So once you've taken your time, you've prayed, you've read it, you've thought about it slowly and carefully, consult a pro. There's no reason not to do that. I'm not going to put myself forward there, but I can be your local representative. I can be like the librarian. The librarian doesn't write the books, but they know where the books are. Okay, let me be your librarian. I don't necessarily write the books that tell you how all this comes together, but I can show you the ones that do. And we have an embarrassment of riches if you speak English in what we have access to when it comes to the church history, wealth of wisdom in understanding Scripture. When you come to something like this, what we always talk about that I think is the most just sort of helpful one volume is that ESV study Bible. And if you pop that one open, unfortunately for this passage, it gives you a couple ideas. It picks one that it thinks is best, but it doesn't give you a lot to really hang your hat on. So you go a little further. There's a guy named Wayne Grudem who wrote a shorter commentary on 1 Peter. Commentary is just a structure for a scholar to go through verse by verse and give you an understanding, an idea of what's being said, to remind you of the themes that are there, to give you a look at what history has said about that book or about that passage. And in this commentary, Wayne Grudem stands on the shoulders of Augustine and Aquinas. You don't have to know those names, but they're big names. These are the shoulders of giants and says that in this passage, what God is, is trying to communicate to us through Peter is that Christ preached through Noah to the people around him before God's judgment in the flood. Here's what I'm saying. If you don't know the Bible very well, in the Old Testament, there was a point when God created everybody, and then we fell. We broke God's law. And there's a spiraling that takes place as the people move further and further from God's original creation ideal. It gets to a point, and God says this about us before the flood and after the flood, that every intention of our heart is wicked. It comes to the point that God looks out on what he's created and he's, he says it's not good. His heart is repentant that he's made these people. And so he designs a judgment, a flood. And this guy Noah is called out by God as one who still is a God seeker. Not perfect. We see that obviously later in his life. But a God seeker that God gives a plan to to build a massive boat called an ark. And that when the flood comes, God's going to bring all uh, a representative of all the animals of the world to get in the ark. God's going to then shut Moses, uh, Noah, and his. I knew I was going to do that. Noah and his family and the animals in the ark, and then the flood's going to come. What this passage is saying is that as Noah is building that ark, he was telling the people who came to watch about the judgment of God that was coming, and when he preached that message. It was the Spirit of Christ that was preaching through him to those people. Here's how I get there. I think it's important, so, you know, keep up. He says, this Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's talking about Jesus' death on the cross, but then his resurrection through the power of the Spirit. Then Peter continues in verse 19, in which, now this is a way in which Peter says, okay, I'm talking about this same thing, but I'm going to use something else to make my point. I'm going to, I'm going to give you an analogy that's going to take kind of a weird turn for a second, but then you're going to see how it connects. In which, 
He, talking about Jesus still, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, people in the past have had different interpretations here. They think that maybe Jesus goes down to hell and preaches the gospel to people who hadn't heard before. Maybe Jesus goes to wherever angels have hell and he's telling them about God's work and what he's done and he triumphs over them. He just, you know, flexes on them with his resurrection. But again, looking at the pros... The way in which this is written in the Greek, it can mean that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, or, and this is just as legitimate a reading, that he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. Meaning, people who were people when Christ proclaimed to them, but, as Peter's writing and we're reading, are now spirits in prison. And the illustration that he gave, I think it's helpful, is that you could say Queen Elizabeth was born in 1926. Now, it wouldn't really be accurate because she wasn't Queen Elizabeth when she was born in 1926. She was just Elizabeth, the lady who may one day be queen. But you say Queen Elizabeth because that's who she is now. That's how we know her. The spirits in prison are those now who have rejected God totally. And they were proclaimed too before that rejection that, that what God did was give them the opportunity you know, you hear about the ark, and you hear that story in a couple of different ways. You hear it as a kid, and it's a fun animal story. And there's a lot of ark-centered crafts in the world. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you're a parent, and they bring those things home, and you figure like, oh, we're keeping it. And then they don't look, and then, whew, you know, it goes away. There's a lot of ark-themed crafts. And our team actually does a great job. They do crafts about all kinds of stuff. But in less well-staffed churches, there's a lot of ark-themed crafts because there's a lot of animals, and kids like animals. So why not? Then you get a little older and realize that the story is about the elimination of the human race, except for just eight people. (laughs) And you weep a little over it. It's scary. And you think to yourself, how dare God? You kind of feel bad for the people who didn't get on the boat. You imagine them beating on the boat, saying, let us in, let us in, as the rain begins to fall. Then, and I hope you'll do this, there's a point when you start to understand a little bit more about your own soul and what it is to rebel against God. Maybe you see this as a a teenager. You certainly see it in little, little children. They know they're wrong, but they don't want to give in. You've done that. Any relationship, long-term friendship, marriage, whatever. You know you're wrong, but you're not ready to admit it. Why? What is that? It's pride. And there's a part of you can think of it as silly, certainly when a toddler does it. It's more frustrating when a teenager does it. It can wreck your life when a spouse does it. But when you stand before a holy God, even if you do understand that you're a sinner before him, there's a pride piece that says, but I'm not going to bow the knee. I'm going to keep doing this my way. And you understand that when Noah was building this ark, it took a minute. His life and the lifespans of people during those times were hundreds of years. The building of an ark that can hold all of the world's animals, just two representatives of each kind. But if you hold all of those animals in a boat, it's a boat. It's a big thing. To go about building that with like two guys, yourself and your three sons, it takes a minute. To do such a large-scale program among all the people of the world, yeah, he got some attention. 
God, uh, Peter talks about Noah as a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher as he did these things. And when the time came and the floods came and the rains came, the people could have gotten on that boat, but they rejected. They walked away from that salvation that was to come. What this is saying in Peter is that Noah is a model for us of how even while we're suffering, we're pleading with people to come and have life in Jesus. That Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Noah suffered as a righteous person trying to bring people to know God, that he's got to walk away from all of his stuff. He's got to build this boat and live on it while the whole world goes away and then comes back very, very slowly. Suffering the righteous for the unrighteous, that you and I have the opportunity to lay down our lives, even just a little bit at a time as we become more mature in Christ and more skilled in love, to lay down our lives and suffer as righteous people. Now, we're not righteous people, but in those times when we're, we're making a right decision, and yet we can get the kicks and the spit. We can get the rejection. So, how do we do this? Why do we do this? Why is Peter saying this in this crazy way that applies to us? Well, there's two things. One, he's saying you never need to fear. You go back to that first verse. What is there to fear? Who is there to fear? You should never fear. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There's the command. Don't have any fear. Walk through the world knowing that you will get knocks, and yet you should not fear. Why? Because if you do good, who is there to harm you? Well, they're still going to harm you? Okay. Well, if they harm you for doing good, look, you're still blessed. That word, again, it sounds so churchy. What it means is enviable. One upon whom favor is. One who has been made happy, glad, blessed. You're still blessed. Why? Because you're, being, you're, you're given the opportunity to stand with Christ. To receive something of His suffering in order to give Him glory. And in, in the burning away of all that, as we'll talk about next week in chapter 4, there's this, there's this newness that's given to you. There's this love that you, you reinforce in your own life and you, in your um, love to Him, your relationship with Him. You, you are blessed. It also says that you may be able to, in your suffering, lead to their salvation. Verse 17 and 18, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He's saying that Jesus' suffering makes a way for us to come to God. Peter has said already in chapter 2 that there's something about the way that we suffer well, the way that we love humbly, that's going to lead people to God. It says in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, I'm sorry, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and then glorify God on the day of visitation. As you suffer well, there's going to be some kind of a turn that takes place. You see this in the most extreme way at the most extreme points of suffering. Throughout the church's history, there's been times where Christians have suffered and been killed for their faith. And can I tell you, when it first started to happen in the first couple of centuries, it was the thing that got the world's attention about Christianity. Boy, I don't know that I like these Christians, but they die well. Whatever it is that they believe, they're able to suffer with a smile. Not enjoying the suffering, but enjoying something that is so much greater than the suffering that they can smile even while they're being burned. You and I have access to that same greatness. Then we should have access to those same smiles. You have something about you that might even in your suffering be able to lead people to come to know the Lord. And we got to do it because the flood is coming. You know, Noah's building this ark. He wasn't building a house. He's building a boat. He wasn't building a hall for feasting. He was building a shelter from a storm. The Bible is very clear that, that this world is broken. That God and His holiness is not okay to just leave it this way forever. That He may be slow in coming back, that we might have a chance to repent... But he's not going to allow this blight, this mold to continue. There's going to be a moment where he opens the door, when light comes in, when he reasserts himself. And that will be the judgment. As believers, we believe this. We believe what the Bible says, that Jesus came in meekness, with no beauty that we should love him, a suffering servant. He rode on a, a colt. But he will return again, and then he's not meek and mild. Yeah, he's still the lamb that was slain, but when he comes again, he comes as the conqueror. He comes riding on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. There is a judgment to come. We really do believe that. That's part of the sting of the message. That's part of why they might spit. We have to accept it as what God teaches us, and in a way, we even have to look forward to it. How? Because of what the gospel does to us. You look at verses 20 and 21. It talks about how they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He's saying they didn't obey. They could have repented. They could have heard Noah. They could have listened to their conscience. They could have observed what they knew about God through the world. But instead, they rejected and yet those with Noah who were brought into the ark were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not about what we actually do with the water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. But because of the spiritual reality behind that baptism, that, that there is an appeal to God as we show the world that you are being buried with Christ in baptism. And then at the end of that verse, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, being raised to new life. You're being passed through the waters. Just as Noah passed through the waters on that ark, just as another very important part of Scripture, Moses and the people of Israel passed through the waters, passed through the Red Sea on their way from slavery to the Promised Land. As Jesus passed through the waters of death, 
and yet was raised. You and I can pass through these waters. I feel like you're missing it. This is saying that you and I can be forgiven. The ark's right there, and you've got a ticket. You're allowed on. You can pass through the judgment to the new, the new creation, the way in which God is perfectly with his people forever. The picture of Jeremiah and the tree, the two trees, the tree and the shrub in Jeremiah 17 is gorgeous. Thank you, Kelsey, for reading it. There's also pictures throughout Jeremiah, both of the judgment of God and of the time at which God is going to bring the people back to himself and he's going to be their, peop- their God and they're going to be his people and they will be with him forever. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is what you and I, in a much smaller way, reenact when we suffer to bring other people this good news that they can pass through the waters. That this judgment doesn't have to be the end. Listen, if all of this sounds like it's just two Christians, it's not. This is for the people who need to know and believe. Yeah, it's for the Christians to take it out to the world, but it's for you this morning to hear and to receive. And if you hear and if you receive, to to rejoice, to feel what it is to have your conscience cleaned. How's your conscience this morning? Is your conscience that, that alarm that you've taken the batteries out of? You know what I'm talking about? That happens with me. I'm a bad homeowner. When uh, fire alarms make the little beep to let you know that they're out of battery, that means we just don't have a fire alarm for a while. Because it's going to take a minute for me to kind of get it all put back together. But in the meantime, no fire alarm. You just take the batteries out because you don't want to hear it anymore. We have a seared conscience. We do that all the time. We take that little voice inside us and we just try and make it as quiet as possible. And we distract ourselves. You have to. You got to distract yourself to not hear that beep going off. This is saying something totally different. This is saying that you can have your conscience clean. That trusting in what Christ has done for you, you can be forgiven. Then live life as though Romans 8 were really true, where it says, There's now, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What he's saying is so crucial. Do you see it? This gospel is that God can make you really clean, make you really forgiven. Forgiven so much so that God has paid your debt. Great illustration I read this week, again from Keller. He's talking about how he had this idea that every time he asked for forgiveness, Jesus, as his high priest, would stand before God and say, yeah, Keller, it was him again. Do you mind? Can we please just again, can we forgive him? And God the Father would say, okay, for you, all right. That was how he kind of interpreted what it was that Jesus would stand on his behalf before God. And then he had this thought, this kind of constant lurking fear that at some point on the 10 millionth time of Jesus stepping into the Father's office and saying, I know, Keller, again, can we please, for me, that God would just say, okay, 10 million and seven, this is too many. No, no. Jesus, I love you. No. That caused fear for him. Of course it would. It should for all of us. 
But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has paid your debt. He hasn't stopped your debt. He's paid your debt. So when it comes before the Father, what Satan the accuser says, no, 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 it was Ben again. Again. Look at your preachers. Ooh, they're so dirty. You must punish him. That then Jesus stands before the Father and says, you can't. I've already paid that debt. Be just, God, and don't punish Ben. Do you hear how it's a totally different argument? It's a totally different idea that you can be forgiven. You can be made clean. Don't you want that? I pray that you do. If you do, let us tell you more about Jesus. Let us help you convince yourself. Read the evidence. See what's true about this God and believe and receive it. And if you are a brother or sister, you already accepted this. To kick away all of that anxiety and all of that angst and all of that separation between you and the Father. To relieve yourself of that guilt and shame and repent and come back into enjoying His presence. And so, taking the love that He gives you, you can be ready to go and be tiny little Christs, tiny little Noahs out, sharing, suffering, maybe, for a little while if necessary, that they may hear and believe. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you make these things plain in our hearts so that understanding and believing, Father, we change. It's not enough to say, oh, I feel like I understand First Peter better. We have to have a radically different Monday because of Sunday. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to think clearly about who we can suffer for. That may look like hospitality, Father. Who do we need to clean the house and cook for? It may look like awkward conversations. It's definitely going to be at least that, Father. Who do we need to sit down with and say, hey, here's something really important to me. What do you think about it? Father, please teach, train, equip your people Allow us to look to one another and see the models of evangelism that we already have here. And let us be real about the judgment that is to come. So that being willing, if, if necessary, for a little while, we might suffer, that others might hear and believe. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.